You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. John chapter 6, we're going to be this morning. We're going to cover the the whole chapter of John chapter 6. 71 verses to work through this morning. It's going to be the greatest four hours of your life. (laughs) Hey, when we hit John chapter... I was kidding about that, by the way. When we hit John chapter 6, things start to get complicated in the book of John. If you're in a life group and you're, you're studying along with us as we go through this, did, I mean, then you get to the end of this chapter and be like, this is weird. This is confusing. I mean, I sure did as I was studying it. And, and, and from our perspective, when you see Jesus, what he's doing, he doesn't always make sense from our perspective. I mean, think about even today. For, forget about just as you're reading John chapter 6, just in our life, sometimes from our perspective, it's like God does not make sense. I mean, you think of the week we've just had as a church, as a church family, the loss and the tragedy. Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with confusing days? What, what do you do with your doubts? What, what do we do when, when God doesn't seem to give us the answers that we're looking for? Like, I've prayed about this. I've called out to God about this, and he just doesn't seem to give me the answer I'm asking for. So here's what I want to do as we unpack this chapter. As we're reading through this, I want you to see this. The first part of chapter 6 is going to be the illustration, and the last part is going to be the application. All right, you're going, to see, you're going to see what Jesus is doing. You're going to see it illustrated in the first part, and we can know how we can apply that illustration in the second part. All right? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the word together. Um, Heavenly Father, we um, come to you this morning humbly. Um, sometimes uh, your word is, is um, not as easy to read and grasp, but God, we also know that you promise that your Holy Spirit is at work so that we can understand. And that although things can sometimes be mentally challenging to figure out, God, we know that you're always at work with your word to our hearts. So God, I pray that we would have um, hearts that are ready to receive. Thank you that you promise that your word does change us. So I pray we'd be changed today. And we go out of here different because we've encountered you. God, we need you today so desperately. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People would say that um, TikTok and, and Instagram really show this desperate need that this generation has for meaning, the looking for purpose and meaning. But listen, social media is not a new phenomenon, right? We've been in this constant search for, for answers to give us hope, to give us new life, to give us meaning in our life for a long time. And here in John chapter 6, it's no different. People were looking for answers, looking for meaning, looking for hope for a meaningful life. And, and by John chapter 6, Jesus' fame had really grown. He was a, a pretty popular guy. All the miracles that he'd done, huge gra- crowds now gathering to hear him teach, hoping to see a miracle. You have your Bibles open. I hope you do. Look at John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So, so you've got Jesus, a large crowd of people, and it's the Passover feast this time, so there's even more people in this area probably, and, and they're following Jesus. Look down at verse 10. Verse 10 tells you how many. 
It says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. They're just counting the men, 5,000. So you you add the thousands more of women and kids. There's probably 15 to 20,000 people on this mountainside right here, on this hillside, listening to Jesus. 15, 20, that's a Leafs sellout, right? That's how many people. Just think of the amount of people that would be. A lot of people. And they're listening to Jesus teach, and the the day's drawing close to ending. And so look at verse 5. Talking about Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, hey, where are we going to buy bread so all these people can eat? And look at verse 6. It's, 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 it's the key of him asking this question. In verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do, right? So, so he's not asking Philip because Jesus is like, oh no, what are we going to do? we got all these people, we got no food. He's asking Philip for a reason. And listen, listen, know this, God does test us. James 1 says that the the testing of our faith produces perseverance in us. It grows us to spiritual maturity, right? Like like lifting weights gives muscles, right? The resistance of lifting weights adds muscles. Same way, the testing of our faith grows our spiritual muscles. 1 Peter says that the testing of our faith produces in us a genuine faith, pure as gold. I've heard it said this way, I've thought of it a lot in in my life, that God will take you on a journey that you would never choose to go on your own to produce in you what you could never produce on your own. There's trials that he'll he'll say, no, I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to go through it with you. And so so testing is, it's often this way of pulling our affections, our attention off of things that don't lead to life. We're looking for meaning in life and God's saying, man, you're looking to the wrong thing, so I'm going to bring testing into your life to show you that's not where it is. But you, you turn your affections, your attention to me because that's where life is. And I would say this, if you're going through trials right now, first of all, listen, the Father knows, God knows. And one reason you're in, in, in this time of, of testing and trials, it may be like what we're reading in this text here, that, that God is at work producing in you an eternal weight of glory. We, we can also face trials because of our sin. You're like, I think God's testing me. No, I think you're just doing some dumb things that lead to dumb consequences, right? That's, I'm talking about myself, not you, all right? And, and, and so we, we can sometimes face hard times because of the choices we've made and the consequences of those choices. Sometimes you can be in trials because people have sinned against you and made life hard. Sometimes trials are just the result of us living in a broken, sinful world where there's just sinfulness and brokenness and sickness all and death, all this result of, of sin that's invaded our world. And, and it's not that you've personally sinned to cause the trial you're in, but you just live in a broken world under the curse of sin. Here's another reason why we can face trials. You can also face trials because it's an attack of the enemy. There's something demonic about it. Here's what I would say about trials. Don't just have one bucket for them. That's where you get in trouble. If your only bucket is demonic, everything's like, oh, it's a demon. You gotta, gotta get rid of this demon because that's why you're sick. That's why you're like there's other reasons for trials. Here, Jesus is actually testing his disciples. Regardless of the reason for the trial you might be in right now, Romans 8:28 is still true for any of the reasons that God is at work in all things. For good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God's at work. Verse 7. Jesus asked, and Philip answered him. He goes, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So Philip goes straight to the practical. Okay, we got this problem. What are you going to do? And Philip's a practical guy. So, so he's like busting on his calculator. 
A denarius is about a, a day's wages. So he's doing the math. Okay, we got 20,000 people here. Uh, if we do burgers and dogs, that's how many per each? Oh, we'd probably want chips and pop in there as well. Three, carry the four. He's like, it's not going to happen. And you got to wonder in that moment when Jesus asked Philip, hey, how are we going to feed all these people? Why, why would Philip not remember back to the water turning to wine? Like maybe Philip would have been able to say, hey, Jesus, I think you can handle this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know you can do this. But, but how often in crisis do we do the Philip thing? I mean, I sure do, right? What do you do? You begin to count. You, be, you begin to worry. You, you begin to despair. You, you begin to hoard. I'm going to hold on because there's no way that I'm going to make it through if I don't grab a hold of my stuff more closely. It goes on, verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, now here's what I, Andrew's about to talk, and, and you got to notice something that in the book of John, this is like the only time you hear Andrew speak, and i got to wonder, it's because he's the brother of Peter who just doesn't shut up, right? Maybe you're like, are you the quiet one? you got like, like a, a sibling that just always talks, right? And so Andrew finally getting up the nerve to say something, right? And, and, and he's about to talk, and, 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 and he's, but he goes, man, what's it say? He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And I'm imagining it this way, that he's starting out with, man, I got an idea. He finds this kid with five loaves of bread and two fish, and, and, and maybe he starts off this statement and kind of trails off. That's what I'm thinking it might be. Like, hey, hey, I've got this kid. He's got five loaves and two fish. There's no way this is it. I'm so stupid, right? Why did he even start? Just forget it, right? Both Philip and Andrew, both looking at the circumstances, one saying, we don't have enough, another saying, there's too many people. I do love the little boy, though. They're staring down this impossible situation, and I imagine this kid where he comes forward, he goes, I know that's not a lot, but it's all I've got. Listen, it's amazing what God can do with one person that's willing to take what's in their hands and put it in God's hands and see what he can do with it. We can count, we can hoard, we can worry, we can despair, or we can say, God, here's my peace. God, what I have, it's all yours. Because I know you can do so much more with the stuff I've got than I can ever do. And, and Jesus takes this small lunch from this little boy. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there's much grass in the place, so men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. Now, in Matthew's account of this same thing, in his eyewitness account, he talks about how it got handed out. He said, Jesus gave it to us, the disciples. Now, think about that. Think about what, if you're a disciple in this moment and Jesus has five loaves and two fish, he breaks them up and gives them to you and you've got like this handful of, okay? He goes, hand it out. Like, think about the risk they had to take. And, and, and when did the miracle happen? It's when they stepped out and goes, okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with this. I mean, do you see this in your life where there's so many times where God calls us to do something and we think, if I step out and do this, I'm going to look like a fool. But if we don't take the step of obedience, we have no idea the miracle that might be waiting on the other side of that step. I mean, just this week, somebody texted um, a few of us 
pastors to just talk about a simple thing that they did. It was just an act of obedience to share a, a quick word about their faith, and the next day they bump into somebody who says, hey, you wouldn't believe when you were sharing what, what this person heard you say, and that bolstered their faith. Now now they're encouraged to be able to share what, what God's doing in there. Like, it's just this, you don't have a, any idea that just a word of encouragement that you might give, an act of service, a small donation or tithe, uh, just the things that we do, that, that person you pray for or pray with, when we hold on tightly to all those things, we miss out on the miracle that might be on the other side of that simple act of obedience. You can imagine how exciting this was. Everybody's eating to their full. Everything they could ever want. Twelve baskets left over. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. They're like, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. And they immediately want to make him their king. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine if elections are coming up and, and one of the politicians says, I'm going to lower taxes and somebody else says, I'm going to create some jobs and then someone else says, I'm going to heal you. You'll never go hungry again because I'm going to provide all your food. Like that person wins every single time, right? But Jesus doesn't want it. You see, here he takes off. He's, he's not having it. He, he's not interested in, in being set up as this little earthly kingdom. He, he's already king of the universe. He already has a plan for the world, and, and he knows this crowd doesn't actually want him as their king. They want what he's going to give them. They want these temporal gifts. They want the all-you-can-eat buffet. And, and so this, this feeding of the multitude here, though, it's this illustration that we're gonna about to see the application. Look at verse 15. He says, perceiving they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea had become rough because a strong wind was blowing. So here they are on the, on the Sea of Galilee. They get a short trip from where they were to where they were going. But the Sea of Galilee, known for, still known for sudden violent storms where it's totally calm and then wind comes down the hills that surround it and a storm picks up and they're in the middle of a storm. And I love this. It says, and it's at night. I mean, I, a storm in the day would be scary enough, but you're rowing a little boat across this sea and it's nighttime. You can imagine how scary, scary that would have been. Verse 19, it says, when they rowed about three or four miles, so they're just working against this wind. It says, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Do you think? I think if you've been raised in the church, you become so used to the Bible, and you read, oh yeah, of course, that's the time when Jesus walked in the water. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Put yourself in the boat, massive storm, middle of the night, and in the midst of the storm, here comes Jesus just strolling out on the water. And fear's the right response to this, that Jesus is not just this cute and cuddly, nice and kind and wimpy Jesus. He's the creator. He's the one who, when Isaiah saw him high and lifted up on his throne, Isaiah fell down and said, woe is me. He, he's the one when Peter, when Jesus had that miracle where all the fish were caught and brought into the boat with Peter, and Peter immediately fell on his knees and said, depart from me, I'm a sinner. It's the same Jesus when John sees him in Revelation, in, in, his, in his, all of his glory, says that John fell down like he was a dead man. They have this fear of the storm they're in, and then, then they see the one who controls the storm walking out onto the water to be with them. Their greater fear, the fear of the around them circumstances now being swallowed up by the 
Messiah, by Jesus, God the Son. Verse 20 says this, but he said to them, it's I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Crazy, right? I love what Jesus says, it's me. Don't be afraid. Do you know that fear not is the most spoken command in all of scripture? By, by, by far the most spoken command. Why? Because I think we need to hear it a lot, don't we? Fear now, their fear completely swallowed up. Not, not overwhelmed by their circumstances, but now because our Savior has jumped into the boat with us in the midst of the storm. It, this is not a miracle about getting people out of storms, right? This is about getting Jesus into the boat. And your situation, your trial, it's the boat. And, and you've got your boat, I've got my boat, right? We, we have our boats, we, we have our storms, we have our trials. But listen, listen, you can trust Jesus. We don't follow Jesus because he makes our life better. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. These first two miracles are this illustration. Now comes the application. We're seeing who Jesus is, and now we're about to see this applied. Look at verse 22. It says, The next day the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, and the Lord had given thanks. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got on the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, I've got to imagine at this point that the disciples are feeling pretty good about their decision to leave everything to follow Jesus, right? They've left everything. Now they're with a guy where 20,000 people are just following him around. And Jesus says this in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's himself, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're, you're not looking for, for me, you're looking to see what I can do for you. And he says, don't, don't go after things that perish. Don't go after the things that are so temporal. He goes, I have something so much more for you than that. God has set his seal on Jesus. That's the stamp of approval. That's the, this is God the Son. And he says, in me, you can have eternal life. Now, the word that Jesus used here for life, there, there are two words in the original Greek language you can choose if you're going to say the word life. We, in English, we have one word for life. Life, that's it, right? That's all we got. There's two that he could have chosen from. When, when he's saying, I'm offering you eternal life, the word he chose there is the Greek word zoe. The other word for life in Greek is bios. You get biology from that, right? And bios, it, it, means, it means physical life, but, but zoe, zoe is the quality of life. So think of it this way. Think of it, it's, it's now August, you're sitting on a dock at the lake. It's evening, the sun's setting. And what do you say? You're like, this is the life. And the person beside you says, were you dead before the sun was setting? What do you mean this means life? Like, are, are, like were you not alive just earlier? No, 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 no. We know what you mean, right? And if we spoke Greek, it would be a lot easier. We'd never be confused by this. We were saying, no, no, no. We're not saying this is bios. We're saying this is zoe. This is such a quality of life. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, I've come to bring eternal that. I've come to bring eternal life like that. Not, not just eternal bios, but eternal zoe. And there's a, a big difference we know between just existing and living, right? So when the Bible talks about eternal life in Christ, he's not, it's not saying that, that you just go on forever. That would be eternal existence, which is a great way to describe hell. You just exist forever. The Bible says there are only two places we will live for eternity, eternal existence in hell separated from God forever or eternal life with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am real. I'm the real life. I give, I give ultimate life. He, he says, don't work for the food that spoils, that, that perishes, but, but, but pursue the food that is eternal life. He's saying, listen, you can go after Zoe in so many places. You can look for meaning and purpose under all these places, and, and, and you got to work at it. And if you're like me, I mean, you can start to think of those things that you've gone after before. Like, I think this will give me hope in life. And we give our lives to it. We go after it. And, and I don't know what it is for you. It's that thing where, like, if only I had this, then my life would be better. Man, there's so many counterfeit Zoes coming at us all the time. And whatever that false life is, it, it will exhaust you. If it's money, if it's power, if it's looks, if it's relationships, if it's popularity, if it's, if it's, if it's power, if it's your job, if it's a need to be needed, if it's, if it's healing, whatever that is, whatever that is, and you're saying, if I only had this, then I could live. Jesus says, listen, going after those things, it's going to exhaust you. But the bread of life, what, what he has to offer he says, I have life that will transform you. I have a life where, where, listen, the God of all creation who's in charge of all of this, Jesus, God, becomes flesh, becomes one of us, lives the perfect life that we couldn't live, dies a death in our place to pay for our sin and our shame and our guilt, what, what we deserve to die for, takes all those debts, all the failures paid for. And as, as you put your hope in him for that forgiveness, and you transfer your trust from false life to true life in him, you're changed forever. You're, you're adopted into God's family. New life, new purpose, new meaning, a new community of people who's, who, who've also been adopted, a, a new power in your life, a new nature that's being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And you have this sure hope, this anchor in the midst of any suffering or trials. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what we remind ourselves when we look around and we, th we think that things are lacking. And, and we're like, I only have a couple loaves and fishes. When you're alone in the boat in the middle of the storm, you come back to this truth. I have a life that doesn't spoil. I have Jesus. He's where life is found. Again, we don't follow Jesus because he makes our life better. He will. I mean, it just, it just will. There, there'll be so much good that comes out of that. When you, when you live a righteous life, there's, there's righteous benefits. But we don't, we don't pursue Christ because he makes our life better. We pursue Jesus because he's better than life. Now, these guys listening to Jesus, look at verse 28. They're, they're like, man, we want that. We, we want what you're talking about. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, what do we need to do? And Jesus gives the best answer, the, the best answer to have this Zoe life, this full life. It's not about what you do. Listen, listen. It's about what Jesus has already done. It's putting your hope in him. It's having him in your boat. Look at verse 29. 
Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Just believe in me. Put your hope and your trust in me. So they respond to him. Look at verse 30. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now think about how crazy what they're saying is. What just happened the day before? Like, well, do you got a sign for us? Like, in the desert, Moses around, they had manna. They had bread to eat. Jesus is saying, I, 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 I don't know why Jesus doesn't lose it at times other than he's God the Son, right? He just fed them miraculously. He says, trust in me. And they're like, why should we? And they want these signs. Listen, miracles will never be enough. I mean, think about the example they give. When God was literally raining down bread from heaven in the wilderness, what were the people of Israel mostly doing? Do you remember? Grumbling and complaining. The miracle's not our hope. It's the one who does the miracles. It's Jesus. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. He goes, I was that bread. The, I am here now. That, that bread is me. He goes, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said, listen, it's not about this thing that you get to gather up, this bread. It's that I've come down from heaven. I am the life. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, I'm what you're looking for. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the hope. I'm that life. And he gives himself this name. He says, I am, which if you're a Jewish person, your ears perk up because God said to Abraham, when Abraham said, what is your name? He said, I am, Yahweh. Jesus now says, I am the bread of life. I'm the God who will quench your eternal thirst, your eternal hunger. Now think about what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. Like think about that illustration of what that means. You don't get the benefit of bread by just admiring it, right? By taking a picture of it and putting it on social media. This is amazing bread. Nobody gets the benefit of that bread. You don't get the benefit of bread by talking about it. You don't get the benefit of bread by studying everything about it. I mean, I know everything that went into this bread. I even memorized the ingredients. You get the benefit by eating the bread. You need to take it in. When you take in the bread, the energy it provides, it's released into your body. And Jesus is saying, this is the Christian life. There's this supernatural change that when, when Jesus' life comes in and there, there's power and there's transformation and there's hope, they're asking, what do we need to do? And, and Jesus is saying, no, it's not something you do. It's not go to church, read your Bible, go to youth group, do all these things. Jesus is saying, take me fully and there's life. Trust in me completely. Look at verse 36. He said, but I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. And everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's what Jesus is saying super quickly. He's saying this, you're chosen by God. And those who are chosen by God, God's not going to lose. Can I lose my salvation? A better question is, can God lose his children? 
But he also says this, he says, and those who believe. Now we're in a bit of a theological conundrum. Well, which is it? Does God choose or do you believe? It's an ongoing debate for centuries in Christian circles. It's an in-house family debate. It's not a, it's not a you don't get to be in my church because of that, or, right? It's just the thing we wrestle with. Does God choose us or do we believe and choose him? And, and I don't struggle so much in this debate. Are we chosen or do we choose God? And my answer is yes. <laughs> Seems to me in scripture, yes. I mean, if you're listening to this sermon right now, I believe that's empirical evidence that right now God's drawing you to the Savior that, where you would need to put your faith in Him and trust in Christ as that Savior. Now, the religious people don't like what Jesus is saying, so Jesus goes after it again. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say I come down from heaven? The religion getting in the way, right? They're looking around horizontally. They can't get their minds around this. So Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets and they'll all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the father comes to me. And yet, and not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He goes, I am the God you see. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus, just saying it again, I'm God the Son. I'm this bread of life. Everything else will spoil. Now, here's where it gets confusing and weird, though. Look at verse 51, how it ends. It says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, I imagine the disciples going, did he say flesh? He'd probably, he said fish. Because remember the fish he divided? He probably said fish. He didn't say flesh. It sounded like flesh. Verse 52. The, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh? To, man, give us this his flesh to eat. And now you're thinking as a disciple, this is what I'd be thinking. If I'm there, I'm like, okay, Jesus is gonna clear this all up. Ministry's growing, people are coming. We don't need something weird all of a sudden to get this whole thing canceled, right? Jesus is gonna make this pretty clear, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And like, he just added blood. He made this even weirder, right? Jesus, you gotta make this sound better. Verse 54, Whoever feeds on my, feeds, feeds, that's worse than eating. Feeds sounds like, day, like dawn of the dead. It sounds like zombie now, feeds. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. And they're like, what is, if I'm a disciple, I'm pulling Jesus aside. I'm doing, I'm kind of doing this. I'm saying, hey everybody, uh, there's refreshments. We got 12 baskets left over. You guys just eat, talk amongst yourselves. I'm just gonna, like, remember the miracle he did? That was awesome, wasn't it? Isn't Jesus great? And then like you're pulling Jesus, I go, what are you doing? You've got to clear this up. Why don't you go back, tell a nice story. You tell good stories. Make fun of the Pharisees. Call them names. The people love that. <laughs> do a miracle. Do something. You've got to explain this. Listen, Jesus is the king. We're not his king. Look at verse 55. He goes on, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living father sent me, and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, 
Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread you're looking for. You see, he's been talking this way all through John, right? You want life, I'm life. You, you want a word, I am the word. You want a sacrificial lamb, I am the lamb. You want a sign to be saved, I am the sign. You want bread, whoever feeds on this bread, whoever takes me in will live forever. And he doesn't fully unpack the imagery here. Now, we probably, if you are a Christ follower, you're like, oh, I get what he's talking about. He's, he's pointing forward to communion, and he's, he's using imagery here. There's pictures he's using but listen, there are times, and maybe, maybe you'll agree with me here, I've been in these times a lot where you just don't understand what God's doing. Do you ever have those days like, God, I don't know what you're up to. And our salvation is not tied to our incredible understanding of the ways behind everything that happens in our life, but our salvation, this Zoe life, this full life is tied to, do you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins that it counted for you? That's it. Do you know Jesus? You don't have to know all the theology, but do you know Jesus enough where you would say, in the midst of a storm, I've got Jesus? Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, heard what he's saying, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Do you ever get there? Maybe you read something in scripture like, man, this, I don't know. This does not fit with our culture right now. And how am I supposed to take this in? Or, or it's something where God's pressing in on your heart to, to do something. Or it's just life circumstances. Verse 61 says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Like, yes, we find this hard. So, so he gives a bit of a hint to what he's talking about. Look at verse 62. He says, and what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Talking about his ascension, where he goes back to heaven. He goes, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. He said, I'm, I'm talking about something spiritual here. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father, that God is the one who draws. He says, listen, when all this pans out, when all this plays out, when, when the plan is fully unfolded, and he's talking about his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, he's saying, listen, the Spirit of God will make all this make sense for you, but right now I get it, you don't understand it. Look at verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. People walked away. I'm sure some walked away because they wanted more signs. They weren't getting what they were looking for. Some walked away. Maybe they walked away thinking, yeah, I, I, I followed him early on. He's changed, man. Back, back when I first started following him, he told great stories. He, he changed water to wine. He didn't talk about all this flesh eating and blood drinking stuff, and they're walking away, right? Some people left because Jesus didn't meet their needs. And Jesus is saying, listen, I am the life. And they were like, I want something else. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? You know, honesty in church, have you ever been there? I mean, for real, where, where you, you had all the faith in the world, but God did not pull through and answer your prayer, or, or the relationship fell apart, or the sickness isn't going away, or the prodigal did not come home, or, or the finances are still in trouble, or the addiction is still there. And Jesus says, do you guys want to leave too? Like, what do you do when you find yourself in that place? 
Let me tell you what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants to doubt what you believe. He wants you to believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs. He wants you to believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs. But what faith in Christ helps us do is this. We believe what we believe. We doubt our doubts. So so when life doesn't make sense, when God doesn't answer the way we think we ought to, listen to Peter's answer. It's, It's the key here. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, I love that. It's not Peter saying, oh no, we get it all. We have all the answers. It's it's Peter coming to this humbling place. Jesus, I don't know anything else, but I know you. I don't have anything else, but I've got you. He, He looks at the situation. I don't think he fully gets it at this time. He doesn't get the whole imagery of flesh and blood stuff. He sees everybody leaving, and it's just him and Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, do you want to go too? And I can imagine him saying, sort of. But when I look at my options, where else am I going to go? I can pursue after this false life, this false bread that doesn't last. I've seen people do it and it just ends in nothing. They, they come back to you, Jesus, now just with more scars. And so, so I, I don't want to do that. I want you because you're the bread of life. As the worst team comes up, here's the point of all that I think chapter 6 is about. Listen, we don't follow after Jesus for full bellies. We don't follow after him because of a promise of a better life. We follow because he is better than life. So even in our doubts, the way we know that God loves us is is not our current circumstances. The way that we know that God loves us is because our sovereign Savior died on a cross to prove it once and for all. Because Romans 5.8 says that while we were sinners, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because no matter how tragic your current situation is, and I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I mean, just this week alone, I've wept with people. I've struggled alongside people in in such difficult circumstances. Just last night, I was um, at a hospital bed with my own mom, hooked up to tubes and machines. And Your questions and your struggles are not insignificant. But listen, if you and I 2,000 years ago were standing at the foot of the cross on Golgotha, before seeing the end of the story, if if we were on that side of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and, and not this side of it and we saw Jesus, God made flesh, the Son of God, hanging on a cross, crying out, it is finished. I think every single one of us would be tempted to say, God, what are you doing? God, you've You've lost control. God would answer us, no, I'm I'm actually redeeming the world. Lord God, I thank you for your grace. This morning we confess that um, it is scary to give up these lesser breads. It's scary to put our hope and trust in, in you at times, and yet we know that you are the one who gives life. Like Peter, we turn away from all the horizontal things we go after. We, we turn away from those things because we know we have nowhere else to go 
because you have life. Because you are life. God, I pray for those this morning who maybe for the first time said, this is what I want to pursue. I want to turn away from repent, turn towards you, Lord Jesus. I, I thank you that you've taken care of my past, you've taken care of my shame, you've taken care of my sin, you, you bore all that, and, and what you did on the cross counts for me today, and today is a day of new life for me. Lord, I'm thankful for those who are here who have, are wrestling with doubts, and that you don't hide from that, Lord God, but you say, let's just bring, bring your doubts to me. And in the midst of the storm, in the midst of that trial, that in the boat we would see Jesus is with me. And he's doing something that none of this is a waste, but is producing in me an eternal weight of glory. Jesus, I pray that we would see you. That our affections would be for you. That our love would be for you. Because we see who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.